dive into Atalanta. We take a look at women's football in Syria. We touch on Juve's struggles once again. And Italy's men are facing England this evening. What players are ones to watch? I'm Chloe Beresford. This is the One Football Podcast, and I'm joined by Connor Clancy. Hey, Connor. Hey, Chloe. Now then, you are resident in Parma, but you are an Atalanta fan. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, both correct. I just want to take a deep, a deep look into Atalanta because they've made such a good start to the season, but they are they are quite interesting because there seems to have been a little bit of a shift. So if we go right back to uh, 2016, Giampiero Gasparini, the boss, he's done an amazing job from almost getting sacked after a poor start to his tenure there um, to taking them to three consecutive third place finishes in Serie A and two consecutive Champions League round of 16 ties. And I don't think that can be underestimated, the, the kind of scale of that achievement. What has been his secret over that time? <laughs> um, <laughs> if you can sum it up I, I don't know if there's much of a secret about it is there it's just his his commitment to what was his style it remains to be seen if it still is going to be this season but I mean he was just always keen for his sides to set up and be relentlessly attacking you know it didn't matter who they were coming up against or, or where they were playing they just attacked and they committed eight of the ten outfield players to the attack as well and everybody just bought into it you know he had a perfect group of players in that there were a couple of maybe more journeyman Serie A names and then there was a a group of young people coming through at that time as well and it was a perfect mix that the youngsters knew if they listened to Gasparini they'd play in Serie A whereas the older players thought that if I listened to this guy, I might achieve something that I've never really managed to achieve in my career. And he managed to get Papu Gomez, who had signed for Atalanta when I think Eddie Reja was in charge. Um, he just unlocked him because Gomez had been playing in a team that was basically the antithesis of what Gasparini's side came to be in that they played with 10 men behind the ball and German Dennis up front and just hoofed it, hoping that an old and not very mobile forward would get onto it. And then Gasparini came in and just completely transformed this team. So his secret is just commitment to his philosophy, his style of play, his his want to see entertaining football. But I'm not sure if it is much of a secret, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. And he's kind of got like a, a bit of a siege mentality approach, hasn't he? Because he's quite... Um... I know in Florence they really despise him because he's he's really kind of hostile, isn't he, towards like the outside. So I think he's, for me anyway, he's, he's really kind of got a group that it's like us against the world type thing. A bit like maybe like Mourinho's Chelsea the first time. Yeah, I think there's definitely comparisons to be drawn with with Gasparini, the, the man, and Mourinho, the man, because... There's, there's a reason that Mourinho both loves and hates Gasparini, right? Mourinho <laughs> adores him but hates playing against him because going back to his time when he was Inter coach, Mourinho, he used to say that Gasparini was the one coach that he hated coming up against because you make a change, a tactical change within the game, but then by the time all of your players have heard the message, Gasparini's already reacted to it and then you have to react to what Gasparini has done. He's an incredible coach in, in terms of his players just always buy in to what he's doing and if they don't they they don't stick around for too long but 
yeah, as a character, he's quite difficult. I mean, there's a reason that basically Papu Gomez isn't at Atalanta anymore. There are things that can't really be said on air about what might have happened in the dressing room there. But I don't think any other coach would have fallen out with a player that was as important to the system as, as Gomez was to Atalanta. And yeah, there's, there is a reason that Atalanta have had this amazing story, but not everybody wants them to, to continue doing well. If this was any other small provincial club from a town of 130,000 people, every single person in Italy would have adopted them as their second team. Because Gasparini's in charge of Atalanta, that hasn't quite happened. There are people who support Fiorentina, Milan, Napoli who have been praying for Atalanta's downfall over the last five years, <laughs> which says a lot about Gasparini's character, I think. I think that's an interesting point to pick up on as well, because um, Atalanta it, it is geographically very close to the big Milan clubs, isn't it? Mm. Um, and sort of, can you describe what Atalanta, uh, what, not Atalanta, but Bergamo is like as a city, as a, you know, what, What's the setup like there? Bergamo as a city is a complicated one, and it's one that since I've moved to Italy, I've been basically working on the on the Bergamo tourist board unofficially because I speak to people from from all over, and I always tell them that Bergamo is my favourite city in in Italy, and they're surprised. And then I try and sell it to them, and quite a few people have gone there on my recommendation, and then come back and said, you know what, you are you're right, it's a spectacular city and that's mm. the standard in Italy is pretty high to begin with but a lot of people don't realise it because like you say, it's close to Milan, it's close to Trentino so if you're going up north, you're probably going to go to one of the lakes or Trentino or Milan, not to Bergamo but it's an incredible place. It's, the city's divided in two so there's the, the Cita Alta and the Cita Bassa and, and the lower part of the city is the new part, the old part is really medieval historical it's built on top of these venetian walls and it's just it's breathtaking if you go up there you do really feel like you're you're not really in the 21st century anymore anymore <laughs> and from there you've got these incredible views over i guess the lower part of lombardia you can look back down onto the old or onto the new town rather and then there's another bit above the upper town again where you can look down and it's one of my favorite spots in the world there you it's called Castello San Vigilio and from there you can look down over the the old city the new city and you can see the stadium as well and you're just surrounded by the mountains like these these introductory mountains to what then become the Alps and it's it's a beautiful place I would recommend that anybody who's coming to Italy for whether it's for football or whether it's just to enjoy Italy to, to fly to Bergamo and make a point of of staying there for a day or two either when you land or before you leave because you can get to the airport from the city centre in 20 minutes on the bus and it's, it's very straightforward but it's an incredible place. Yeah actually that's a, a bit of a tip for me because I've been um, to the Città Alta but not I haven't I didn't even know there was another bit further mm. up so that's a, a another one on the to-do list I think from the sounds of what it sounds like up there do you, do you have to like do you have to walk up to that bit or do you, is there another um because there's a funicular yeah there's really, a, isn't there, there's a the second funicular bit? as well to get oh, up really? to the higher bit you okay. can walk it but I wouldn't recommend it I've done it before <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay that sounds really good um and going back to the football 
so after all this, uh, you know, amazing stuff, Champions League, um, kind of fairy tale stuff, really for Atalanta, they they did have a dip in their league form last season, uh, season finishing eighth. Why why that dip? Why why did they drop off? This one's very simple. They they never had a team because from basically October, they had at least four players out at any given time. I remember when they went away to Lazio. I think this must have been. This must have been in 2022, so it would have been January or February time. They basically had to play with a team of kids and they got a scoreless draw and it was celebrated like it was a big win because <laughs> Giorgio Scalvini, who's now a bit of a household name in Italian football, he played in central midfield and this was a 17-year-old centre-back. He, he was just having to play in that position. There were other kids who had to play in that position as well, but from the start of the season, they were just plagued by injuries and it was a real pity because there was a feeling that last year could have been the season that saw Atalanta kick on that extra bit because if you remember at the start of last season Robin Gosens was still an Atalanta player Hans Hattabor mm-hmm. was coming back from injury having been out for about a year and before his injury he was probably the best right-sided player in Italy um, Gosens was up there with the best left-sided players alongside probably Ivan Perisic and, and that's about it but Gosens was injured Hattabor took a little bit longer than he would have hoped to get back to his best. He's still nowhere near that now. But even in midfield, Remo Freuler and Martin Daron weren't always available together. And that was always a really important thing that the two of those players had to play. Duban Zapata was out for a considerable length of time. Luis Muriel has always had his fitness fitness questions hanging over mm-hmm. him. And even when he was playing, he never managed to find the form of previous seasons. Josip Ilicic had his problems both physical and personal so it just never really worked that everybody was available and when you're operating on Atalanta's level you don't have all of this incredible depth now coming into last season there was a feeling that they had more depth than usual but it still isn't the depth that's available to the likes of Juventus Inter Milan Napoli so when you have a couple of players out you notice that fall off a little bit more I think it's to Gasparini's credit that Last season wasn't a complete disaster. I think finishing eighth for Atalanta before 2016 would have been celebrated massively, you know, because basically Gasparini's come in and all of Atalanta's best ever league finishes have been under him. Even the bad ones under Gasparini were better than anything that came before. So we do have to put it into the context of this this is Atalanta. This is a tiny little provincial team from Bergamo, but... There was a dip, but it's perfectly understandable when you look at the fact that they didn't have anybody available and they were in the Champions League for the first half of the season too. So <laughs> it's not an easy and, balance. Yeah, and do you think the fact that they're sort of out of Europe this season will give them a hand to kind of rebuild after that after that dip in form? Yeah, for sure. I, I was coming to the end of last season and when it was clear that they weren't going to get into the Champions League, I was kind of hoping that they wouldn't get into Europe in any capacity because while Atalanta are a club that still celebrate getting into Europe and if they were in the Europa Conference League or the Europa League, they would have taken it seriously. Mm -hmm. There's a feeling that this team probably aren't going to be up in that part of the table forever. So while they're there, they might as well aim as high as they possibly can. And if it means missing one year of Europe, European football to make a real push at getting back into the top four again this season. I think a lot of the fans would have signed up for that. And it's still early, but 
it looks like that's what they're they're going to get this season yeah it kind of felt like a, a bit of a reset button mm. to me yeah just hit it, hitting that and and kind of starting again with a with a new cycle i just want to pick up on one player that you mentioned there because robin gosens is somebody who <laughs> you know what i'm going to ask don't you um is somebody who you know i i think of really really highly he was he was so good for atalanta um isn't it scandalous that he's not playing for inter right now it is um <laughs> yeah although i'm not sure if he has fully recovered because he had quite a bad injury with atalanta he moved to inter when he was injured and then when he came back to being available for playing matches, even Perisic was playing incredibly well. And mm. I personally think that consistently, Robin Gosens was a better player in that position than Perisic was in, in the time that he spent in Italy. But there was no way that he could have been displaced from that team last season. And then Gosens was still trying to work himself back up to match fitness. And to be fair, he probably still is because fair enough, he's had pre-season, but that doesn't replicate playing competitive football regularly. So mm -hmm. I I do think that if Inter don't just lose patience and sell him, he will eventually like get that position in that Inter team. And I mean, we've seen it with Atalanta. He's brilliant. He's unstoppable when he's when he's playing regularly and he's he's not battling with, with fitness concerns. So yes, it's scandalous, but I think between now and the new year, I can understand why he's not playing. If it gets to February and he's still not playing, I will be, I will be incensed because the move wasn't one that he he wasn't sold for a fee that made you think, oh yeah, Atalanta kind of had to do that deal. It was a reasonable mm -hmm. deal. It looked like a very good one for Inter. It might, with hindsight, in a couple of years, look to be a stinking deal for Inter and a really good one for Atalanta. But I'm of the opinion that it, if Gosens was never sold he would have been integrated back into the team a lot quicker and he would have been playing regular Serie A football by now and he'd be doing what he was doing before his injury. So, yes and no. Yeah, yeah, no, I get that. And uh, I guess for Inzaghi, he's kind of, he's under a lot of pressure right now, isn't he? So, um, you know, that to bring in a player that's possibly not 100% match fit is a bit of a risk for him. Um, but yeah, but certainly like to see him back playing because, it, you know, it's a shame not not to have him in the league and, and doing what he was doing before. Yeah, it is. I, w I do wonder though, because I wonder how he'll do without someone like Papu Gomez playing with him because they mm. were so important and they were such a great combination. And Leonardo Spinazzola probably played the best football his career, even now when he was with Atalanta and it was largely to do with Gomez, you know, that that extra yard of space was freed up because mm -hmm. Gomez was playing on the left side of Atalanta's attack and defenders often doubled up on him or even more. And Gosens had similar success. You know, there was space created because he had those players playing in front of him who attracted defenders. Now, with Inter, he'll probably have to play a slightly different role, but I think he's more than capable of adapting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, there, there have been players that have had massive success with Atalanta that have gone elsewhere and, and, and not, replicated that form and I think you know a lot from my point of view a lot of the um the Atalanta magic if you like is created by the system by the group 
and you know when you see when players leave they they do have that drop off don't they yeah always and i think that comes back to gasparini again because gasparini just communicates so so clearly and so precisely what he wants his players to do at any given moment you know there's a reason that some players come to atalanta and just can't do it uh, martin mm-hmm. skirtle someone that springs to mind immediately it's easy to forget that he actually did sign for atalanta I yeah. think it was was at the beginning of last season or the previous season. I think it might have been in the summer of 2020. And basically after three days of training and a couple of preseason games, he, he went to Gasparini and said, look, I actually can't do this. It's nothing against <laughs> you and the system, but I'm not able to keep up with what you're asking me to do. And then they quite amicably just parted ways, ended his contract and he moved on to Turkey, I think it was in the end. But... Yeah, it's not a surprise. We've seen a lot of wing-backs come and go as well. A lot of central midfielders who just haven't lived up to it. So it's a gift and a curse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I guess it's a gift when you get the money for them and then yeah, not, exactly, they right. go onto the club and they're not, not quite what they thought. Um, but yeah, um, Gasparini's side has sort of become um, a bit of a favourite team for the neutral, uh, a team for someone to kind of look out for as well as the team that they they sort of naturally support um, because they're attacking play and and sometimes lack of care in defence, although not this season, as we'll come on to. Um, they often just went out, didn't they, to just simply outscore the opponent. Um, I look back at some of the results and, you know, there was a load of kind of three ones and four ones that I skipped past because I was looking for... Yeah. The six twos, there were two of those, and even a seven two. Um, but this season, the defense has been kind of stingy, if mm-hmm. if I could use that word. Um, they they've only let in three goals, which is the kind of best defensive record in the league uh, in the opening seven games, and they're joint top with Napoli, as we record just um, at the international break. How? Um, has Gasparini changed his approach if he if he indeed has changed his approach? I think he's definitely placed a little bit more importance on the defence but I think it's mostly been through necessity so I remember a friend of mine is, a, is another journalist out here and he interviewed Pierluigi Gollini a couple of years back mm-hmm. it was probably in Atalanta's first Champions League season and Gollini the goalkeeper basically said yeah look we don't really care about keeping keep clean sheets and my friend was like, well, you're the goalkeeper. How do you feel about that? And he said, that's oh, fine because I know if we can see two, we're going to score three, four or five because basically we've got Papu Gomez and Ilicic up there. So yeah. the strikers are going to have as many chances as they want. And a lot of that is helped by the fact that the defenders join in with the attack most of the time. But there was a big fall off once Gomez left. And a lot of people don't want to accept that this is true, but it's because Gomez left and he was the best creative player in in Italian football, one of the best in in European football. And for a while, they just tried to... It seemed like they were just trying to deny the fact that they were missing a brilliant player. And they tried to continue doing the same things. They were leaving the same space at the back for other teams to exploit, but they didn't have that genius up front who was able to just create something from nothing. And then to, to add to that... A couple of months later, one of their most important creative players in Hans Hathabor, just from being a driving up and down the right wing all the time, he gets injured. And then by the time he comes back, Gosens gets sold. And 
Ilicic has his his problems as well. So it was like a perfect storm that forced Atalanta into realizing, okay, we can't be that team anymore. We we don't have that genius. Malinovsky's amazing, but he's nowhere near the player that that Gomez is or was, and he's never going to be that type of player. If if Atalanta break through a stubborn defense now, it's because Malinovsky's thumped one in from thirty yards. It's not because <laughs> Gomez has played uh, a ridiculous pass from that same position. So they've had to adjust, and now they probably are a little bit less less committed is probably not the right word, but less determined to just throw everybody forward because they know they've got defensive vulnerabilities now and they know that those chances don't come quite to the same extent that they did previously. I mean, in the 1-0 win against Roma, they had one shot on target. They they had four (laughs) shots in total and they won 1-0. That's not an Atalanta under Gasparini performance, but maybe that's what we're going to have to come to, to expect. And last season in those big games when they got good results it was because they shut teams out I'm thinking about the Napoli game I'm thinking about the Lazio game when through through necessity they they played like they were trying to hold on to a a scoreless draw and then maybe nick something whereas before that was never the the approach like you said the number of times that Atalanta scored six seven or eight goals I mean it's ridiculous (laughs) yeah it it is but now they've had to change so I'm not sure if this will be the new Atalanta going forward or if they're just kind of waiting for that new Gomez to come along. I think they'll be waiting quite a long time for that to happen, to be honest with you. So maybe they will have to be a little bit more tight-fisted for for what's left of this season. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of a hard one to accept, isn't it? Because it it was it was so good mm. during that time. It's uh but if they can you know, I guess you can't argue with the top of the league if, or joint top of the league, if, if, uh, if they're doing well playing a different way, then it's an easier pill to swallow, I, I suppose. Yeah, I've got to be honest. I, I enjoyed that win over Roma like few other wins in in recent years because it was so unusual. Atalanta do mm. not win in that way. If they won one nil before, it's because the other goalkeepers had the game of his life. And the opposing <laughs> forwards have had stinkers because they'll always have had chances before. But yeah, it, it is very enjoyable to to see Atalanta like this. But what's remarkable more than the style of play changing is that Atalanta are top after seven games because a joint top with Napoli. Because one of the the real identifying features of, of Gasparini's Atalanta is that they're rubbish until the end of October. Like every season that Gasparini's been there. All of these vultures have been preying on it being the end of this fairy tale. Yeah. And I've lost count of the number of times that we've we've reached mid-October in the last few years. And everybody's been saying, writing articles and talking on podcasts about how this is the end of an era for Atalanta. Because look at them, they're sitting 12th after seven games. And it's just... But if you had watched Atalanta in any capacity under Gasparini, you would know that they grow into seasons. They always start badly. So the fact that they're unbeaten after seven, they've they've played the champions and they've played a European champion from last season and they're joined top of the table, that has me very excited about what yeah, might happen. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, because, I mean, that that is literally why he nearly got sacked mm. in his first season, isn't it? Because they, the slow start. Um, so, yeah, uh, I guess it's it's opened up a whole new world now being so, you know, top of the league at, the, at this stage. 
um what who would you say um with this change of approach who would you say are atalanta's star players right now i see duvan's injured he is the answer because he he is now the player that gomez and, and ilicic were in that i never really understood why they were at atalanta that is now duvan zapata because he could he could go to any club in europe and improve it now I'm not saying he'd be a starter for any team in Europe, but he would play enough minutes at any other team in Europe. I think he's probably only still at Atalanta because, well, he's quite publicly said how happy he is and his family are in Bergamo. But also because he's got a bit of an injury record, so maybe at his age now clubs are less willing to take a chance on him. But I'm going to say that it's Martin Daron, and he's probably the least glamorous star player <laughs> in in the world but you take him out of that team and it crumbles for the last few years it's always been it's been Daron and Freuler you know in in those two in front of the the back three Daron on the right Freuler on the left if you take one of those players out it falls to pieces now thankfully it seems like they had a succession plan in place for for Freuler because Freuler's moved on and and Coke Miners seems like he's capable of playing in that position while not while not being something that's detrimental to the defensive unit. Ederson can also play there and he's just an excellent player, more so on the ball than off it. But I think it's got to be the Rome because he's he's got that that grittiness that not everybody has. Mary Demiral probably has it as well, but in the back three, but Darone, he's dirty. I remember Dirty in a good way, not like he's not going mm. to break people's knees or anything. But remember when he first joined Atalanta? I think it was probably twenty. It was the season before Gasp, I think, and then he got sold that summer and then came back a year later when when Gasp had transformed Atalanta. But he did an interview in in the Città Alta with some. I think it was a Dutch publication, and it was probably about three months into his spell and he said, oh, look, I'm a really nice guy off the pitch and that comes across as well. You can see that he is and he's funny and he's got a nice character. But on the pitch, I like to step on people's toes. And that <laughs> exactly summed up what you saw from watching Atalanta. He's clearly a really nice guy, but you'd hate to play against him because he's in your face. He's aggressive. He's gonna, he'll probably pinch you when you're not expecting it. And he will step on your toes and he will kick you and he'll make your life hell when you're up against him. So I think he is the star without being glamorous. It's, it's Martin Daron. I think he's the one player that's probably irreplaceable in this team now. Yeah. Yeah. To keep that kind of spirit and character mm. going. Yeah. Um, so would you say, um, that Atalanta can sustain the form from this season and what realistically are your expectations of the season by the time it comes to its conclusion expectations are for the last three games to be played with European football a possibility um, yeah. whether that's Europa League or Champions League those would be my expectations my hope is that they will finish in the top four I think it's very possible especially considering the fact that there's no european football for them to consider so they can just focus on Serie A all of the time whereas the other teams will be getting a little bit tired and jaded by having to play in the champions league the europa league and the conference league 
we've already seen that have a detrimental impact on Fiorentina this season. It's not that easy for Roma to balance. It's never been easy for Lazio to manage. And even Milan and Inter are struggling with it. Juventus are struggling probably for different reasons. But <laughs> I, I think the fact that Atalanta aren't in Europe will give them a real chance of getting back into the top four this season. And I'm kind of finding this season hard to look at because it's not like any other in that it's very much two seasons in one with with one trophy at the end of it because of that massive break in the middle. Um, so I, I, we've seen already this season that, look, Milan and Inter have already dropped points three times each after seven games. That is a bit strange to see. Inter have already lost three times in Serie A alone. So I'm kind of getting the feeling that we might be in a position where come May, the whoever wins Serie A could finish on a points total that would have been like a, a third or fourth place points total in, in the past. So if you would ask me in the summer, would it be possible for Atalanta to finish third? I'd have said absolutely yeah. And now as the season's gone on, I think third might be first. So could Atalanta win the title this season? Yes, they could. Will they? I don't think so. But I do think they have a really, really good chance of finishing in the top four and surprising teams again. And who knows, maybe they'll finish second. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it really is an interesting one this year, isn't it? It seems to have been blown wide open, like you say, by the, the break mm. for the World Cup. But also it's wide open for other reasons as well. Um so yeah it's it, it's i mean with udinese up there as well it, at the moment it is it is kind of a bit of a wild ride isn't it yeah it's a funny looking um, top four even lazio being there is a bit strange yeah yeah for sure um just to sort of to wrap up on atalanta i just want to look a little bit sort of behind the scenes uh, and away from the pitch now the owner Antonio Pacassi, he's he's been sort of lauded and uh, really praised for his business sense because sometimes when smaller clubs get in the Champions League and they benefit from that extra revenue, um, they kind of just blow it all on players, don't they? They just mm. go go crazy and then they they you know they inevitably kind of dip and that and that money is seen as wasted really. Um, but Atalanta have not just splashed it all. Um, on players they've sort of invested in the infrastructure they've they've bought the stadium from the council which as we know in Italy is is quite a rare thing for the club to own its own stadium they've redeveloped um but now it's slightly different because the majority ownership as far as I understand 55% is owned by a US consortium led by Stephen Paliuka um so what what is the talk now um, in Bergamo about this new structure behind the scenes? Caution, a little bit of scepticism because everybody knew the, the Percassi family, everybody knew Sartori, everybody knew that Atalanta and Bergamo were this like inseparable thing and there was a lot of trust in that Atalanta would always sign these players that most people had never heard of before and with a normal club the fans would think why are we signing these players but with Atalanta there was just an acceptance that okay if Atalanta are signing them it's because they're really good players and they're probably going to be sold for 10 times the amount in a couple of years but now everything has changed basically from from the scouting to 
to the people putting the money in as you said and the sporting director as well and there is just a little bit more uncertainty and when they do things or when they're linked with people there there are a few more questions being asked than than would have been asked in the past and it's not as positive <laughs> um <laughs> you know any change leads to a little bit of nervousness right and i think yeah. that's happened with with atalanta at the moment particularly when when a day doesn't go by in bergamo without everybody talking about atalanta whenever they go to a bar for a coffee or whenever they get in a bus, you know, because that's just the way Bergamo and Atalanta are. Yeah. It's part of the daily life. So, yeah, somebody that's not from there coming in does lead to questions. So the atmosphere has definitely changed in terms of the, the trust in the club, but the fact that the the Percassi family are still involved is huge. When When I saw that Atalanta were being sold last year, I was... I mean, I had a sleepless night or two because I thought, well, what's going to happen now? Because Atalanta are the way they are because of everything being the way it is at the club. Yeah. So when there was a risk that the Picassis weren't going to be involved, I was I was sweating a little bit, you know, I was, I was very, very nervous. But when I heard that they were staying involved, quite heavily involved as well, I did relax a little bit because I think as long as they are there and they are involved, nothing disastrous is is going to happen because it won't be allowed to happen you know Antonio Percassi is still the president Luca Percassi is still chairman of the board so those things while they will lead to changes they're not going to be completely dramatic changes that will put the club's future at risk or anything yeah yeah I think that's that's really positive and I guess um the Picassos wouldn't have agreed to stay on if this new investor were, or this new consortium was totally kind of crazy yeah. or gonna do like really wacky things so and i also don't yeah. think they would have sold it to somebody unless they had a really good feeling that it was going to go okay mm. yeah because they've been so smart haven't they up to now yeah and they're quite um, important figures around bergamo with, with different businesses and stuff so I, I don't think they would have you know just sold atalanta on to make a quick a quick couple of euro yeah yeah okay so moving away from Atalanta for a moment now um you've uh, covered a lot of um women's football in Italy um and I just wanted to ask a couple of questions about that um because this week the both Roma and Juventus were playing in the women's champions league um but Italy didn't do so well in the in the women's Euros so I just wanted to ask you kind of generally where is women's football up to in Italy right now mm. I'm really, really pleased that I've actually had the chance to come on here and talk about women's football, to be honest with you, because it's it's something that whatever I appear on, people don't ask me about it. Now, we do a, a regular, a weekly women's football podcast as well on, on the on the website. And we, we, like you said, we've been covering it for quite a bit. And it's nice to have the opportunity to talk about it, particularly this season, because there's a real feeling within those who cover Italian women's football that this is an exciting time and I think that has been reflected in the midweek games because the Women's Champions League is notoriously difficult to qualify for. Even if you qualify for the qualifiers, you have a really, really long path to actually get to the group stages and now both Roma and Juventus are just one game away from both qualifying 
for the group stages. Now, Juventus qualified last year and that was historic because Italian teams don't always get there. Now we're in a position where of the teams that are playing in the Champions League, two of them are going to be Italian sides. Like we're so close to that happening. So basically Juventus went away to Denmark and they played HB Koga. I've definitely mispronounced that. Sorry, Danish listeners. <laughs> but they drew 1-1 and there was probably a little bit of arrogance on Juventus's part going there to play that game. Everybody expected Juve to get a win, but to take a 1-1 draw back to Turin for the second leg next week puts them in a really good place. Whereas Roma went away and beat Sparta Praha 2-1, having gone 1-0 behind. And they're going to come back to Rome next week, really fancying themselves to, to get that job done and get things over the line. So this is all in the context as well of Italian women's football being in its first season of full professionalism. Because last year, it was almost confirmed that this was going to happen. And then it finally got signed in, I think it would have been in March or April when it was officially signed into law. And now, since the 1st of July, Italian women's football is fully professional, which is incredible news, obviously. The fact that they were going to the Euros when this was happening as well was quite exciting. And then you look at the results from the Euros and it's, it's easy to think it was a disaster. And the reality is it, it wasn't. Now, Italy probably should have qualified from that group, but they were by no means certain to qualify from that group. It was always going to be France first, and then Belgium, Iceland and Italy were going to be battling it for second place. Italy ended up finishing bottom of the group. But in those games against Belgium and Iceland, they should have won both. They they drew against Iceland. They should have won that game. And against Belgium, they lost. But on another day, they could have very easily won. Now, I think the Euros probably came at a bit of a bad time because they went into it knowing that this current group of players are at the end of a cycle. Now, the likes of Sara Gama, Barbara Bonensea, Cristiana Girelli, there's a lot of really important but old players, particularly in the context of women's football. And for them to be coming to the end of their careers as it becomes fully professional is a little bit sad because they're not going to reap the rewards or see the benefits of this fully professional league. So... I don't know if it was through loyalty that a lot of the older players played in the summer and the likes of anyone who follows me on Twitter would have seen me moaning on a daily basis that Agnese Bonfantini, a really exciting right winger for Juventus, wasn't starting. She didn't play until I think the last 20 minutes of the tournament and immediately gave Belgium something to worry about when she came on. <laughs> Giada Greggi, who's probably the best Italian midfielder, she was left at home. While Anna Maria Sartorini, again, Greggi's teammate at Roma, was also left at home. And nobody really understood why those, those players weren't in the squad. Probably due to loyalty, but there was never a, a chance last summer that Italy were going to win the Euros. So I was of the opinion that they should have gone there with a team that set them up to go to next summer's World Cup with the best possible chance. Now, in the subsequent World Cup qualifiers, Greggi started, Bonfantini started. Sartorini still wasn't involved, but the fact that they started suggests that we are now starting to think a little bit more about the future. It has been forced a little bit in that Gamma and Bonansea were unavailable because they've been injured, but Italian women's football is in a good place. It's still a long, long, long way behind England, France, Spain, Germany, the US, and a lot of other countries, but we've got to give it time. We've got to have more people like to his enormous and eternal credit, Kyle Krauss at Parma, because 
he's come in and basically said, well, I, it's not a matter of me thinking that we should invest in women's football. It's more a case of why on earth have we not been doing that for the last 20 years? So he's trying to play catch up quite quickly with Parma. He's, we've seen a lot of investment in the women's team here. They play at the Tardini as well. So that shows how seriously he's taken things. So in short, if it's possible to be short after having spoken for about 10 minutes, um, <laughs> Italian women's football is in a better place than it was a year ago. It's in an incomparably good place compared to where it was 10 years ago. But it's still a long way behind the other European leagues. It's moving in the right direction, though. And there is every reason to be excited about it. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't so long ago. I was um, at a Fiorentina match at the Frankie. Probably only maybe five years ago, not even that. And Fiorentina um, were the only Serie A side that had a, a women's equivalent. And they were parading the Scudetto round um you know everybody was applauding them but they it was it was basically them against a bunch of kind of amateur teams so in that short space of time obviously the next year Juventus came in and then (laughs) they won it (laughs) inevitably um but you know from from that and it it wasn't that long ago it it's really exploded and um I guess the progress has been so quick that even though they're still behind other countries it's still massive progress isn't it you've got to you've got to look at it that way I think yeah for sure now clubs are investing in it there are clubs who are not doing as much as they perhaps should be doing I'm looking at Milan here in particular Milan like to pretend that they're taking it seriously but then the Mm. reality is they're they're not taking it as seriously as they might be but the likes of Inter Roma, I mean, Roma deserve as much credit as anybody for the way they've treated their, their women's team. Because, And this, is a, this sounds like a stupid thing to say, and it sounds like it's taking away from everything good that's happening in women's football. But Roma are treating their women's first team like they're the men's first team, because hmm. that's what they should be doing, right? Yeah. Juventus do that as well. Parma are doing that as well. The other clubs, while they're taking things seriously, they're not taking it as seriously as those clubs are and I do think we, we should learn a lot from the fact that look at Juventus they came into the league having okay done what teams here do they bought someone's place in Serie A and, and then built on it from there but since they've been in it you cannot question what they've done they've been remarkable the the backing yeah. they've given their team the, the presence on social medias and things like that it's just been it's excellent it's so professionally done Roma are the same and I think Parma are going to get there the only thing I'd say against Parma is that they their their presence online is a bit of a joke at the moment but we're one month into the season so I'm willing to cut them a little bit of slack on that regard but in terms of what they're actually doing behind the scenes it's 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 flawless so we are moving in the right direction it's a very exciting time to be covering Italian women's football because you can see the progress not only year on year but month by month um <laughs> the fact that Juventus got to the knockout rounds of the Champions League last year they beat Lyon in the first leg at the Allianz Stadium Lyon who went on to thump Barcelona in the final and win it shows just how good Juve are and the fact that Roma are now going toe to toe with Juve domestically shows just how good Roma are as well so there is a lot of good here yeah brilliant it's so it's so good to hear you talk you know so enthusiastically about it as well it's 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 really great to hear um okay moving back to the 
the sort of the men's side um on the podcast last week um we touched a, a lot really on Juve's struggles and since we spoke uh, on last week's podcast um they've had a really humiliating defeat to Monza <laughs> it's really funny though isn't it like <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Adam, but it's funny. <laughs> um, where do you think that Juve have gone wrong? Where, wh- how has all this happened, you know? Um, I'm not going to go into all of the details behind the long answer, but the long answer is Cristiano Ronaldo, isn't it? Mm. Like, that is where things started to go really, really badly wrong. And I don't mean letting him go, I mean signing him or even contemplating his signing in the first place. But if we're going to point out one man in particular has got to be Massimiliano Allegri, because Mm -hmm. he's a disaster since he came back. In his last couple of seasons before he left the first time, there was a feeling that he had been left behind. And then he disappeared for two years, came back, and he really looked like he, he was four or five years in the past. Now... I'm not a person, I don't think it's really our job to to call for coaches to be dismissed because Mm -hmm. that's not what we're supposed to do. But there are two exceptions to that for me. And one of them is Massimiliano Allegri at Juventus and the other is Maurizio Gans in charge of Milan's women's team. Because (laughs) I just do not know what they're doing that could be construed as good. It it seems like everything they do goes against the good of the team and against the, the good of the club that they're in charge of. And... I just do not see what Juventus are seeing other than financial reasons as being a a motivating factor to keep him in that job. Because as long as he's there, nothing's going to change. Even if they win the title this season, they need to get rid of him. Because look at the squad they have. Yeah, I think it might have been... Winning the title is kind of like masking the problem, isn't it, really? Exactly. And it was that when they won it. When when Cristiano was there, there were problems there that were being like p- papered over because they had a, a guy who scored loads of goals and they won the trophy. But yeah, I, I don't see any good that can come from continuing this. I, I don't want to call it a project. It's more of like an anti-project, isn't it? Because it, it's yeah. standing in the way of any real progress being made at the club. So... Yeah, Allegri is is quite a big problem. You know it's a problem when you're being outplayed by a team that have never won a match in Serie A. You know, Monza are are a terrible, terrible side. And a lot of people are talking about how Di Maria got sent off. But Di Maria getting sent off didn't change the game one bit. It didn't. It didn't. Juventus looked like they were playing with nine men from kickoff. Yeah. And and how, how far things have fallen and how much of things have changed when... Uh, a team like Monza are, are so fired up mm. and, and think we can win this lads like you know in, in the past you'd see the smaller teams kind of resting players against Juventus because they knew it was inevitable mm. they would lose and it was better to save those players for a match against a, a, a smaller team the following week but but it's changed so much now that they're like oh we're playing Juve let, let's let's really go at them and we can we can get something yeah I, I mean I still wouldn't be shocked if they just won the title because they'd stink the place out for the rest of the season. You know, it wouldn't be a shock. But yeah, they they are they are the worst Juventus that I can remember. Okay, so with Juve in the state that they are, um, who I know you kind of mentioned that Atalanta could win the title, but who 
realistically do you think has the best chance of winning the Scudetto this year? And I know that's difficult. It is difficult, but from from what I've seen and more so than than what I've seen, what I've felt when I've been at games this season, it's Milan. I still think that Milan team are they're probably better than they were last year in terms of they've managed to take winning the title and made it into a, a positive. Whereas I think Inter took it and it weighed on them. Milan have allowed that to to make them feel an extra foot taller, to to give them that extra bit of of spring in their step as well. And I've not been as impressed by the the vibes I've gotten from a team as much since I've I mean in the last couple of years here in Italy than than I have from from this Milan team. I do think they're they're Italy's best side at the moment, so I'd put them down as being my favourites. Yeah, yeah, the good answer. I, I, they even you know they they seem to bounce back well from setbacks, don't mm. they? Which I think Pioli has kind of struggled with in the past. Uh, he certainly struggled to bounce back at Fiorentina, but yeah, um, they do they do look good for me too. Um, okay, tonight Italy's men face England, having failed to qualify for the World Cup. Um, who would you say are Italy's players to watch? It's it's a little bit depressing at the moment. And it sounds strange to say, given they won the European Championship a year ago. But the the Italian men's football team are now like the sporting shame of this country. Because the women's team have qualified for the World Cup next year. The, the handball team are winning things. The basketball team are winning things. And... It's, you just look at this and it, it, there's not a lot to get excited about at the moment. And I don't know if that's a consequence of Roberto Mancini being in charge, but I just have the squad up in front of me and there's nothing about it that makes me think, oh, that'll be fun. <laughs> I think the exception is probably Giacomo Raspadori because I'm a big fan of his. I think the move to Napoli is, is something to to keep an eye on and to be excited about, particularly in the context of the national team. But other than that, I'm just going to have to to be selfish and think I'm, I'm happy that Raphael Toloi is involved. But <laughs> honestly, Bastoni's not having a great time this season compared to previous years. And Emerson Palmieri's not someone to get that excited about. Luis Felipe being named in the, in the initial squad as well. It's just, you feel like things have fallen off again for Italy since winning the Euros and it's hard to see a path back. Now, if you're going to push me, I'd say Sandro Tonali being in, involved in midfield and Tommaso Pobega maybe getting a chance is, is interesting, but is it something that I'm particularly excited about and I'd encourage people to watch out for? It? Not really. The winning the Euros was kind of like this weird peak moment, wasn't mm. it? It was like that, looking back on it now, it seemed like a bit like the end of an era and then it just like fell to the ground, didn't it really? And uh, I think they've got some work to do really before they, before they can kind of, it's hard to see where they go, isn't it from there? Yeah, it is. And it's hard to see what's going to force them to, to change or adapt or evolve either, because there, there's not a lot of talent coming through. You know, people like to talk about Kiers and Barella as if they're 16 years old. They're, they're not. Like they they should be the mature heads in that team, and Borella's not, Chiesa's not. You know, Chiesa's always injured as well, which doesn't help. But 
Yeah, I really don't know. I mean, we we had a lot of positivity talking about Atalanta and the women's football here, and now we've we've <laughs> dipped to Juve yeah. and the national team, which couldn't be further away from the excitement. But well, yeah. we're going to pick it back up now because okay. um, we end this podcast with a a little bit of um, a fun segment where we ask you who you prefer between two players and it's going to be Atalanta themed today okay so I'm going to ask you with who you prefer Luis Muriel or Duvan Zapata oh okay <laughs> um Luis Muriel is one of my favorite players in terms of what he has done for the club I've supported has just been pure happiness and joy and he does things that other players don't do he scores goals and has fun when he plays football in a way that very few players do. But it's Duvan. Duvan's special. Yeah. He's like, he's a unit of a striker. Watching him just gives me a happiness that I don't find anywhere else. You know, players just bounce off him. He scores goals at a really impressive rate as well when he's fit. And I just, I adore him, his character and everything. When he comes through a mixed zone, just the way he communicates with you, even if he's not stopping to have a chat, just he's he's got a such a, a polite manner about him as well. And I absolutely adore Duvan Zapata. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going to say him. That's brilliant. I love that. I love that you've kind of captured his essence there as well. Mm. Um, and okay, so now we've got... Um, a little bit of a, a trivia question. This is where I get exposed as being a fraud, isn't it? <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> uh, it's Atalanta themed again, and it's to ask um, who has more total appearances for Atalanta? Is it Papu Gomez or is it Raymond Freule? Oh, good question. And I... it's close. It is close. I'm going to say it's Freule, you know, because I think... Freuler had a couple more injuries and suspensions while he was with Atalanta, but he was there for an extra 18 months at the end. And I think they came in at more or less the same time. Maybe Gomez came in a couple of months early, but I think they might have signed in the same window. Um, so I'm going to say Freuler. You'd be correct. Yeah. Good. What's the difference? So, okay, Papu Gomez is on 252. And Freuler has 260. So oh. it, it is really close. Really That's from close. his suspensions, I guess. Otherwise, yeah. he'd be a bit further ahead, maybe. Goals are a different story. <laughs> yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Um, Although, to be fair, Freuler always scored goals when they when they really counted. Mm-hmm. I think he scored against Juve twice. He scored against Napoli, Roma. He scored in the Champions League against Villarreal and Valencia. So Freuler got big goals. Well, he has 21, which isn't a bad return, mm. I would say. Um Papu Gomez has 59 mm. and 72 assists which is just absolutely ridiculous stupid isn't it like yeah. I mean honestly and if he was <laughs> playing with a striker that was actually competent for his entire time at Atalanta those assists would be well above 100 yeah yeah for sure well Connor it's been an absolute pleasure um can you uh, wrap up just by telling the listeners where they can follow you on Twitter and where they can find your work Yes, absolutely. Thank you very much. Because we've actually just launched a whole new website, which is nice to plug. But you'll find us on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok at Serie A Total. The website is total-italianfootball.com. And I'm on Twitter at Con J Clancy. Brilliant. 
thanks so much and i hope you can join us again later in the season thanks chloe it'd be a pleasure